Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm fortunate to have two gynaecologists with me, Dr Simon Edmonds and Dr Michael Wynne-Williams. Simon and Michael have worked together for many years as senior gynaecologists. Both of them have extensive experience in the surgical and multidisciplinary management of severe endometriosis, chronic pain and complex gynaecological surgery. They are both involved as board members of the Australasian Gynaecological Endoscopy Society and have been directors for two years at AGES Fellowship Subspecialty Training Programme, supporting the education and training of future advanced laparoscopic surgeons in Australia and New Zealand. Michael, an Otago graduate, completed his ONG training in Christchurch and after 20 years of working in UK and Australia, Michael's come back to New Zealand to lead the laparoscopic gynaecology service at Auckland City Hospital. He's a regular anatomical dissection workshop leader in Brisbane and trains the trainers. He works here at Auckland and also at Ascot in private. Introducing Simon, he's a dual trained both in surgery and gynaecology in London before moving to New Zealand. He worked at Middlemore Hospital in South Auckland for nine years and now he's focused at Ascot Central Women's Clinic, sits on the advisory board and works mainly in private. So welcome. Thank you. Kia ora Louise. Kia ora. So endometriosis, we're just discussing this today and this has come about because there's a new consensus document which has been released by the New Zealand Ministry of Health in March in 2020. But before we start with this discussion, let's think about a definition. Simon. So probably the easiest way to think about it, which is what we generally tend to tell our patients, is it's basically the presence of ectopic endometrial tissue outside of the lining of the womb. So the lining of the womb, the bit that comes away each month, and the commonest three areas that we see it is either in the muscle layer of the uterus, which is adenomyosis, which normally causes painful periods, and then outside of the uterus, either on the ovary as an endometrioma or in the pelvis on the peritoneum in varying different spots. And that's probably the easiest way of explaining it, and that really will direct us to what sort of symptoms patients might get. Sure. And what about the incidence? Has this changed at all over the last few years? You could say in the, maybe in the last 100 years or last 50 years, the incidence has increased because before the onset of having um, contraception um, or easy access contraception, women were either pregnant or breastfeeding. And with the advent of contraception techniques that were easily available in the 60s, uh, women had reproductive choice. And as a result, we have smaller families and women are also choosing not to to have children as well. So in the last decade or so, so, people have suggested that the incidence is increasing because of the awareness, but it's more, the world has become a smaller place. Social media uh, has made women aware, medical practitioners aware of endometriosis. And I think that's why this is perception of an increased incidence. Right. Thank you. What about the pathophysiology? Do we know anything more about the pathophysiology as our knowledge and imaging has improved? So the classical thinking uh, was brought on by a 1900s pathologist called Samson, and that was the theory of retrograde menstruation. And that's still commonly taught in med schools uh, as the main cause of endometriosis. But now that we look into it more closely, we know that endometriosis is actually uh, a very complex pathological condition, it's a chronic inflammatory condition, 
and endometriosis, as Simon rightly said, is endometrial cells or endometrial-like cells, so it's actually not endometrium, it's it's similar to endometrium, sitting in the pelvis. And we haven't actually got any good model that that retrograde menstruation actually occurs. We actually haven't shown that in any animal models. We know that genetics has got a um, significant component, and one of our uh, lead research scientists in the world is Grant Montgomery, who's an Otago graduate who's based in Queensland. Uh, who is doing a huge amount of research in epigenetics, and we know then um, that's the environmental effects of, uh, on our genetics and, and how that affects endometriosis. We know that there's immune effects, there's envi- potential environmental causes, and then there's also uh, developmental issues, uh, metaplasia and uh, malarianosis. So the development, in the development of an embryo, that cells are being left behind in the development that potentially turn endometriosis. So it's a really complex issue. And because of that, we don't quite under, still don't understand, that has led to uh, confusion and diagnosis. Absolutely. So thinking when we've got someone in front of us, what history do we want to be asking about? And what are the clues in that history that would make us think, oh, could this be endometriosis? So this is the thing about endometriosis, as probably a lot of you know already, that it's the, it can present in a myriad of different ways. And I think the way I sort of focus on it is the, the pain perspective and then a lot of the other symptoms and a lot of the other ways that it can affect your body. And clearly, the, historically, there's the four Ds, which is the dysmenorrhea, so regular painful periods requiring pain relief and refractory to your standard contraception or hormonal manipulation, which we'll talk a bit about later. And then your other Ds, which is your dyspyunia, which is pain with sex, generally deep rather than superficial. And that's due to disease in the pelvis. Dyskesia, which is quite a specific sign for endometriosis. It's that deep rectal pain due to endometriosis around the bowel. And when the uh, stool passes down, low down in the rectal sigmoid, they get this pain, like a stabbing sensation um, because of the inflammation. And then the kind of fourth D is abdominal D bloating. So that's probably a mixture of things due to the inflammation from endometriosis, plus or minus adenomyosis. So those are your kind of commonest things taking history and then there's a whole bunch of other things that it's difficult to know whether are they endometriosis related are they hormonal related things like bloating diarrhea progesterone related diarrhea obviously and constipation is quite common in the second half of the cycle tiredness weakness referred pain down legs all symptoms that can be related to having periods each month anyway but also symptoms that can be related to endometriosis. And that's where it's quite difficult to actually decide whether it's endometriosis or not. But also that's quite useful because a lot of the other allied health professionals that help us with the management of endometriosis, that's where their areas and they're focusing more on specific areas like the bowel or the pelvic floor. But we'll talk a bit about that in a bit. Just wonder if you can clarify with that, the last three Ds that you mentioned, are they cyclical as well? Or are the clues? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, once you've got a, if, if a superficial disease with endometriosis, generally it's more painful towards the cycle. Once you've got towards the second half of the cycle, is it, uh, as it's proliferative endometrium. But I mean, it can be at any point. But once you've got deeper disease, that's the group. If you're getting pain outside of the period without pooing or without having sex, if you've got chronic pain, which is after six months diagnosis, but if you've got pain between the periods, that can be a sign that you've already got that hypersensitivity and you've got deeper disease. 
But one of the things we keep harping on about is there is no correlation between the severity of the disease and um, the symptoms that the patient experiences. And what about family history, thinking about the incidents that you mentioned before? Is that something that we need to think about? Absolutely. And um, we know that genetics plays a strong part in the, in the role of development of endometriosis. Um, some of the, the big trials that were done um, on looking at genetic family trees and endometriosis were actually done from patients in Christchurch and uh, in Brisbane. And uh, research that has been conducted in Brisbane and in Oxford has, has uh, developed really strong uh, a number of genetic allele, alleles, I think at least five or six, that are linked to endometriosis. And is there any difference, do we need to think paternal, maternal history when we're thinking about that family tree? So both sides of the family, maternal and paternal sides. Um, so really important in a history taking to talk about sisters uh, of the patient, um, mother and father's side, and you'll, you'll often find uh, endometriosis. And that will often lead to delays in diagnosis as well because the perception of the patient is often that this is normal. She's, she's grown up with her mother or her sisters, having painful periods, taking time off work, it affecting their, their daily life, their activity, their enjoyment of life. And that is normal, which in, it's not. And on the flip side of that, I'm certainly seeing more patients, I'm sure you are, of mothers who've had endometriosis, whose daughters then start having periods. And I saw some the other day who'd had four periods and they were very painful. And the mother had brought her up. The GP wanted to start the pill, which would be perfectly appropriate. But the mother brought her up because she'd had endometriosis. She'd had seven laparoscopies. She need, my daughter needs a laparoscopy. We need an answer. And so on the flip side, you can actually, it's almost too, too much information. There is a program running run in schools for one of the, the, pretty much the only charity in New Zealand, the NZ Endo charity. And they run something called the Me Program, which some GPs might have heard of. And that's going out to schools and educating younger girls about their periods. And they have an app as well. And that can be quite useful from an educational perspective. But if you're not careful, I think sometimes you can get, you know, overkill and, and, and anxious mothers wanting to get their daughters seen and get a diagnosis sooner, which is, it's that whole balance to when do you actually, we can talk about that maybe later about when to do the first laparoscopy and when do you need to and what indicators are there. And there's a similar program running in Australia, uh, which started in South Australia. It's being funded by the National Action Plan uh, in Australia, and it's now uh, being rolled out to more states throughout the country, and it's a really good program. Is there a number, that, a risk factor number? So if mum had endometriosis, do we know that level of detail yet? Not particularly, no. No, no. okay. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing I was thinking when the history is Past fertility. I mean, some of these women. Yeah, we haven't mentioned fertility mm. actually. Sub well, we call it subfertility now. I think that's correct, Mike, rather than infertility. Mm. Um, so, difficulty falling pregnant because infertile means you're not going to fall pregnant, and it's obviously a lot more of a weighted term. In terms of guidelines, Michael, I think uh, more historically we've said under the age of 30, more than two years of trying, and over the age of 30, more than a year of trying. I mean, I think if you've got other symptoms associated, those secondary symptoms, then if they're subfertility for more than six to 12 months, you want to be thinking of referral fertility services. Absolutely. And we know that, that women presenting with infertility, 50 to 60% of those patients will have endometriosis, particularly with pain. So thinking now, we've got a woman in front of us, we need to do some sort of examination. We, what are we going to do? So 
clearly in primary care in the room, it's examination is all you have, plus or minus ultrasound if it's funded. So I often get asked this by GPs is, do we actually have to examine women? Obviously, in, if someone's a schoolgirl or a Virgo intact, you don't really, you're not going to examine them vaginally. And abdominally, unless they've got very heavy periods and you're worried about fibroids, or if you're worried about a very large ovarian cyst, so other factors to their pain, does it actually help you with a young virgin who just has painful periods? Probably not. So I wouldn't examine anyone. Once someone's sexually active or has those secondary symptoms, that's where, depending on your confidence level, um, and I know a lot of, in primary care now, a lot of smears and smear taking is done by practice nurses. And certainly, unless you're a GPs with an interest in women's health, I think a lot of GPs listening to this are going to be, GPs are losing those skills to examine, and it's quite a subtle signs. And if you examine anyone that's got pelvic pain, whether they've got endometriosis or not, and you just push inside on the cervix, of course it's going to be painful. But the key things vagina you're looking for, not just pain behind the cervix or moving the cervix or obvious pelvic masses, it's more other things like pelvic force spasm or issues at the introitus with the hymenal ring, some of the other causes of pain with sex. That's what you're again going to identify vaginally. Um, and I think as a, at primary care level, if you do do VE and you can find discomfort or pain either at the entrance or deeper inside, if you can get to that level, that's useful for triaging and grading in secondary care, definitely, in terms of who should be seen. Otherwise, pretty much that's it. Um, in terms of the positive and negative predictive value, it's very loose. Lots of studies, depends who's doing it. Even as gynecologists, we often miss things vaginally as well. So it's not a 100% finder. Just one simple sign that is very useful that I, I would see a patient at least once a week uh, is just looking at the abdomen and looking for signs of erythema abigna. So the chronic burns on the abdominal wall and on their, often their back and their, um, their buttocks from use of uh, heat packs. Uh, and that's actually very common and a, and a good sign that the patient's experiencing significant pain. And I suppose actually going back to our history again, a pain history is quite mm. useful, pain isn't it? history and, is Analgesia. Yeah. It's everything. And it, exactly. What level of analgesia is it? Your simple Panadol or patients on, you know, your pain ladder of Panadol and your non-steroidal and then adding in codeine and then adding in the tramadol and then onto opiates. And it's really important for us to identify, you know, if you have a 24-year-old that's already on codeine because their pain either with or without their period is so painful that you've really got to get on top of that and get a diagnosis. And I think actually over my years of practicing as a GP, you know, we used to be the gatekeeper to all the medications. Now you can buy everything, a lot of things over the counter or at the pharmacy. So we're not regulating those scripts you're not seeing things escalate until years down the track so that's always something to be aware of I suppose. So moving on to imaging now so in our new consensus statement we talk about imaging a little bit but there is some regional variation amongst the health pathways so I wonder if you could just clarify probably not necessarily what the health pathways say but what is the best option for imaging or should we be imaging in primary care? The best imaging, uh, and that's a, a worldwide consensus, is ultrasound. And, and that's in sexually active women. Um, young women who are not sexually an, uh, active, uh, you can perform abdominal ultrasound, but it's not particularly useful. You may find uh, endometrioma. But transvaginal ultrasound scan is well-researched. It's very effective, highly um, specific for picking up, particularly deep infiltrating endometriosis. Uh, stage three and stage four, and with good practitioners picking up potentially even stage two. 
Um, there was a really good review published last week uh, in um, Reproductive Medicine stating that really we should be not performing diagnostic laparoscopies on advanced stage endometriosis and relying on ultrasound scan to make the diagnosis and um, to plan surgery. Uh, and that's certainly a big part of my practice. I'm what we, I guess you'd call a surgeon sonologist, so I will, when I'm seeing the patient, perform ultrasound at my examination and confirm the diagnosis of endometriosis with the patient on the table. And the benefit of that is the patient is there, they can, you can show them their endometriosis, and it validates their symptoms immediately. And this is a, a very common practice in Australia, and so I'm bringing these skills uh, to New Zealand and um, teaching my fellow colleagues about scanning. Uh, but also trying to advance uh, uh, scanning skills within the women's health uh, ultrasound uh, practices as well. Awesome. So that's from a, from, a, from a triaging and a primary care perspective. I mean, that's the model we absolutely yeah. should be aiming for. And Michael, public or private at Auckland, you're setting up a clinic, you're training the sonologists. And that's pretty much unique, I would say, um, uh, in New Zealand. And from a practical perspective, taking a step back, having, for example, uh, when I was at Middlemore, we got funding for the ultrasound to be performed in primary care by private providers to speed up so that we, we could then triage with the ultrasound scan report. Now, that doesn't happen in Auckland. You have to come up to Auckland for your ultrasound with your three children and then go away again. And then you might get to see Mike or his team. And then you can do an ultrasound in terms of planning. So for primary care, I appreciate it's really difficult if the funding's not there. And that's what Hopefully, with the, either with the Women's Health Plan or, the, or the, this, this change from DHBs at the three, certainly in Auckland, they're all completely different mm. where the funding goes. And it just drives us as, as clinicians in the hospital, it drives us insane when Ulstein is really useful, but it has to be done by an appropriately trained person. So in answer to Mike's question, I think getting an ultrasound for us in primary care is helpful because it can see other things like adenomyosis and endometriomas. But for the actual endometriosis, it really needs to be someone specialised in doing, whether that's a sonologist or a clinician. And that's the same issues in Australia as well. And in, in the community, um, there's often poor quality ultrasound scans, and you'll often you, we would often see you know patients that had three or four ultrasound scans when there was obvious severe endometriosis. So it's about trying to have a standard approach throughout the country, and I think hopefully with the new approach to removing the DHBs and having one big happy family, uh, we're all doing the same thing and developing protocols across the country, um, we can improve things for our patients. Yeah, and I think from an equity point of view, and I'm always thinking about that, you know, in my practice I have, depending on which side of the fence or side of the road the patients live, you know, some are getting better care because I can refer them to one DHB versus the more central DHB as you say, we're not, yeah. I can't get them in. And trying to remove that postcode lottery that occurs in this country, yeah. which I see you know, all the time. But having you know, worked in Queensland, where we had Queensland Health, and we so that was one big health provider for the entire state, and it, it, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it, I think that's what we should be aiming for. And with the waiting times now, certainly in, well, in New Zealand, in, in, certainly in Auckland, and if you're in South Auckland, you won't get seen unless you have pathology on a scan with pelvic pain. Um, same in Christchurch. Whereas if you live 20 metres over the road in Auckland DHB, you will be seen. Um, and that's just clear, completely inequitable. And that's, what I, and that's whoever you are. And then obviously the next step is where you have your ultrasound scan to try and ask people 
from Otahuhu to travel up to Green Lane in Auckland to have their scan with three children and take them away. It's just this isn't going to happen. So I think that's something we need to prove on both sides. It needs to be done nationally with a national action plan because that's what's going to force providers to do it. So I just want to point out one thing, though, that a normal ultrasound scan does not rule out endometriosis. Mm. And I know there are DHBs in this country where if you don't have a positive ultrasound scan, you will not be seen. And um, that's we, it's important that we change that. Okay. So thinking now about diagnosis, you've mentioned laparoscopy earlier. So this is the gold standard, is my understanding, for diagnosis. So do all women with suspected endometriosis need laparoscopy? Uh, no, they don't. And um, really what we should be aiming for is, a, is medical therapy initially. Okay. Uh, and that medical therapy should be patient-centred with shared decision-making between the practitioners and the patient. There is no particular uh, hormonal method that is, should be used initially. And I know that the New Zealand guidelines are recommending progestins initially, but actually the, the new Australian RANSCOG guidelines say that there is no particular preference. You should use what the patient it's going to be beneficial for the patient in their particular situation. And if contraception is is their aim and they're, or they're not reliable at contraception, taking contraception, then consider a long-acting uh, progestin uh, or long-acting contraceptive. If um, they feel what they'll do well on a, on a combined pill, then use a combined pill or a progesterone-only pill. The issue we have in New Zealand is that we have a limited number of progesterone-only pills. One of the most beneficial, Cerazet, is not funded. So we have, there's a whole lot of complex issues that need to be taken into consideration and, and just being prescriptive and saying you have to use a progestin first line, I think is, I, I disagree with that. So in terms of laparoscopy, that's, I think if you asked 40 specialists who needs it, you'll get, well, hopefully you'll probably get 50% suggesting that it really depends on symptoms and that level, that yeah. primary and secondary symptoms. And once if you've got primary, dis- if you've got dysmenorrhea that fails to respond to medical treatment, whatever that may be, or plus or minus secondary symptoms and clinical findings or ultrasound findings, that's the group that should be having laparoscopy by an appropriately trained specialist because that first laparoscopy, we know from evidence and studies that the first laparoscopy is the most important. And we've definitely changed over the last 10 or 20 years from ablation. The word ablation really no one really is abla- shouldn't be blating endometriosis anymore. You need to excise it and excise that peritoneum. And if the first laparoscopy, you identify it, if you excise all that peritoneum, the chance of needing to go back again within two to five years, I say my pa- to my patients, is highly unlikely. Recurrent endometriomas, yes, because you can't do anything about recurrent cysts. But the peritoneum, and there's a real drive to excising the peritoneum, not being aggressive, because that's probably the wrong word, but just being clear that once you've got more than a few spots, picking away little bits and leaving the peritoneum around it, that's not effective treatment. The way I describe it to patients is it's like a, the peritoneum is like a blanket thrown all over, over all the organs inside. You're removing holes of that blanket and cutting the disease out. That regrows, but you don't get endometriosis in that area. It can occur elsewhere, but not in the area you've removed. So obviously, the more you remove the, the lining, the more chance that it's not going to come back there. And that, that's kind of the mainstay of treatment. Anything to add to that, Michael, in terms of who, who should have a laparoscopy? You know, I think it's, it's when medical t- treatment is not working. 
I think, or on ultrasound scan, um, you've got positive signs of severe disease and you referring to an appropriate specialist with an interest, they may still not choose to, to do surgery in con- conjunction with a shared decision making with the patient. But it's important that the patient is involved in that decision making. Talking about that, um, you said an appropriately trained or um, mm. a specialist with a special interest. Often we get that question amongst our colleagues, who do we refer to? So what, what do we look for amongst your qualifications, I suppose, if we are referring, looking for someone? So uh, within the, the training that an obstetrician and gynaecologist receives, um, we expect that our trainees at the finishing of their training should be able to treat level stage three endometriosis. So that's moderate endometriosis. If a uh, specialist wishes to do further training in in Australia and New Zealand, uh, we have the AGES um, training program uh, and um, we're just setting up a a training program at ADHB. Simon's been involved in the one at Middlemore and there's another training centre in Hamilton. We have probably, I think, probably about a dozen uh, advanced ages um, trainees that have been through the program in New Zealand, uh, and there are a number who are currently training in Australia who will be returning to New Zealand in the next few years. So they're the type of surgeons that should be managing the advanced level four disease and the and the multi organ disease that might involve the bladder or the bowel uh, or extra pelvic endometriosis such as diaphragm. Uh, thorax uh, and other organs outside of the pelvis. But the majority of gynaecologists should be able to manage that mild to moderate disease. And this is one of the, from, a, from a D, the 19DHB perspective, clearly you're going to get different levels of experience. And we've, um, Michael's done a survey which myself and our new fellow have been involved in nationally to look at what level are people at and what are they doing and what training they've had, what do they feel comfortable doing. Because in the same way, in New Zealand, we have um, three centres for gynaeoncology with an MDM each week. Should we move towards that model? And that's the model, if you look at the UK guidelines and the Australian guidelines, that's the way we should be moving. So again, people get the right assessment and the right scanning preoperative, the right planning. They have one operation and all the endometriosis is removed. And we just stop or try and reduce this repeated, repeated surgery, which we know is never ending and it doesn't improve the quality of life and pain scores. And but that's going to take a huge amount of work to set that up nationally. But at least we've started the ball rolling by at least getting some data to say, well, this is what people are doing. We're engaging with a lot of the other specialists in the country. So we're quite hopeful that that will improve things in the longer term. Yeah. And it's, I, th- I think training in the AGES program gives you the skills to manage those patients who may come back after surgery. And we know that you know, uh, up to 50% of patients will have pain after five years after surgery. And... As gynaecologists, we're trained to operate, and so it's very easy to say to these patients, let's do another operation. It's harder to say, no, I don't think you should have an operation. I think we need to manage your complex pelvic pain um, with a multidisciplinary team, and we're going to have this team that's all around you and going to help you. Many centres in in New Zealand do not have those sorts of uh, women's women's health-focused pain uh, units and so it's really hard and so as a gynecologist it's often easy to just do another laparoscopy and of course patients will get a benefit from that there's you know there's um, the placebo effect of just having a laparoscopy and the, the, the benefit of having a, a 
a big dose of muscle relaxant given at the anaesthetic. And unfortunately, we see, you know, since I've come back, I've seen patients that have had 16 laparoscopies over a number of years. And that's, that is a disaster. And we want to stop that. Yes, yes, exactly. And I have a number of patients, actually, I had one a week or two ago, and I said, well, why are you having this laparoscopy? And she said, oh, we just, I just have one every couple of years. And the whole sneaky peek thing, to me, I was sort of like, well, unless it's actually justified, potentially we're doing more harm. We are doing definitely more harm, uh, diminishing returns. And as Simon and I would like to say, one operation done well, you, you you may need more surgery for recurrence or severe disease or a staged procedure. But if you're needing a third procedure, and this is what's in the, and the actual, was one of the good things in the guideline, or the consensus statement is your case should be discussed at an MDM. So a group of gynecologists, possibly pain specialists, radiologists, reviewing the case and seeing what are the other options. And that's probably where the, the multidisciplinary team comes in. As we've said, a lot of the other causes of continued pelvic pain, be it pelvic floor spasm, be it dietary, be it bowels, there's a myriad of other causes that you've got to start thinking about. That Surgically, yes, we can remove the disease, but this, there's a lot of other things that you've got to think about. And that's where I think in primary care it's, it's difficult. But you guys have got the skills. You see people without endometriosis that have all these other symptoms and you have a pretty good knowledge base to deal with that. Managing you know, a chronic disease, which is you know, not just the endometriosis, but all the other things that come outside of that, the effect on their, their mental health, their work and their education. And you guys are specialists in life, as, mm. they, call, as they call them in Australia. Uh, GPs and I think um, GPs primary care needs to be at the core of managing these patients. Bringing us back to the basic management in primary care so as you said we're in a really good position to make the diagnosis and instigate management so just thinking about principles of management for a moment what are we trying to achieve here for these women? So I think for primary care you're if we go back to your potentially two groups of the women that are having the primary complaint is painful periods, the consensus document and all the other national, international guidelines, it's perfectly appropriate in primary care to start some form of, form of hormonal manipulation. Be that the combined pill, the progesterone-only pill, uh, the Mirena, if you want to go straight to that, or even Depo or Judel. Depo and Judel we'd keep less because their amenorrhea rates aren't as good, as you know. Cerazet from the progesterone-only pill has the highest amenorrhea rate, up to 40%. Combined pill, um, less of an amenorrhea, but um, less breakthrough bleeding. So it doesn't really matter which one you try. And that's probably one of the things Mark and I want to get across in primary care. And it's perfectly appropriate for you to do that. Once you get the secondary symptoms or patients who are refractory, if you can't control the menses after six months, that's the group that we believe, and they're more likely statistically to have endometriosis, which would benefit from intervention. And that's the group should be referred up. And just the other point on that, if you have women, we've all seen women who have said, oh, I've seen various people for five or 10 years and I've got constant pain. You've almost missed the boat. And that's the group that if you haven't got to their severe disease early enough, they're going to have hypersensitivity and chronic pain and they're much more difficult to manage. So we're not suggesting that everyone has to be referred up, but it's that balance between when should you. And I think it's perfectly appropriate for you to try in primary care medication. But once people have breakthrough symptoms, if they can be seen, depending on your DHB, that's where they should be seen. Can I just clarify, we're aiming for amenorrhea? You're a, well, if, if I've said the highest amenorrhea rate is Cerizet, it's 40%. But if you're even, I mean, the old adage, as we know, 
the uh, Faculty of Sexual Reproductive Health in the UK, they changed their guidelines about four years ago that that pill-free week, that's old school. So now we, if you're on the combined pill, continuous, continuous, continuous. And if you want to have a break after seven weeks, nine weeks, 12 weeks, because women often think that idea they have to have a period. Well, obviously, that's incorrect. You don't. And if you take it continuously, you're stopping the endometrial thickening. That's the whole point. If you have the breakthrough bleeding and that's the annoying bit, getting that breakthrough bleeding, the guidelines are you can have up to five days off, like we're actually up to seven days, but I say three to five days off your pill and then go back onto it and you can take it like that. So if they're not using it for contraception, you can have another break two weeks later if you're getting breakthrough bleeding. But if obviously for contraception, you have to be on it for at least three weeks at a time with a maximum of seven days off at a time. But you can actually be much more flexible with the pill. So not everyone, excuse me, is going to have amenorrhea. But if you can achieve amenorrhea and it improves our symptoms, then that would be a good goal. That's what we should be achieving. And I think one of the key uh, key things in primary care when you're starting the pill uh, and you're planning to try cycle, so running the tablets together, and you can do it up to a year if you want to, if they're not getting any symptoms, is education. Uh, so often you see young women starting on the pill, but they've, they've got their mother in their, in their ear saying, oh, you've got to have a period, it's bad for you, and just reassuring them that it's normal. When you have a, when you have a period on the pill, it is completely artificial. It is not real. And I often talk to patients about the history behind the pill when they invented it or brought it into the market. There was no period. But in the 60s, women wanted the contraceptive effect, but also wanted to have a period. Uh, so a, a, pre, a sugar-free uh, sugar tablet was introduced to instigate a period. Um, and it's a marketing exercise. Mm. And I mean, it's the pill packets still have sugar pills in them. And we can't get, you know, when we prescribe six months of oral contraceptive pill, we're actually only prescribing four and a half because we've got sugar pills. So actually the whole thing needs to change. So the mentality changes so that we're doing it for everyone. Continuous pill, whether it's contraception or managing endometriosis and PMS. So if you look at the original packets, um, which I did for a talk I did, they were circular mm. and literally it was just, there were no different coloured, it was the same tablet. Mm. And I think as Mike said, it was in the mid 60s that this idea um, that women had to have a period and had to have a bleed because it was normal and it wasn't normal if you weren't, it's, it's completely been debunked now. So we've talked about the medical management. What about pain management? Are there any clues here or tips that we should be using particular forms of analgesia in these women? So we know that 10% of women will have endometriosis. Within a woman's lifetime, 20% of women will experience chronic pelvic pain. So that's a big issue, okay? And that's for various reasons. And complex pelvic pain is a complex issue. And many of these women experience multiple symptoms and they're often... um, There was a nice study done by uh, Susan Evans, who's um, one of my good friends and pain specialist and gynaecologist in in Australia. Uh, She did a nice study and found that the majority of these patients who are presenting with endometriosis and complex pain had up to 12 issues that they brought to a consultation. And that's really hard as a primary care physician or a tertiary care physician to, to look at all those things. And that's why these patients need a multidisciplinary um, care plan or a care team. But, you know, how do you deal with this uh, in primary care? Well, um, 
essentially it comes down to providing information to the patients, and I think that is the key, providing good information to the patients. And that, that is really important because they feel so alone and isolated because this is not something they talk about and they don't necessarily talk it about their family. So providing information, particularly good information, is our website pelvicpain.org.au, which is the Pelvic Pain Foundation. And I think we'll be providing, or there's a whole lot of information links we'll be providing at, at the end of this podcast. Uh, so the information is the key. Uh, we've talked about hormonal uh, management and trying to achieve amenorrhea. Um, simple analgesia such as paracetamol and uh, non-steroidals initially, avoiding the uh, morphine-based medications. And the reason we want to avoid those is because of the exacerbation of central sensitization that we know that opioids can cause. And central sensitization is a complex problem. It um, patients will have symptoms such as nausea, fatigue, difficulty sleeping, and sleep hygiene is a massive issue with these patients. All right? And again, providing information uh, is really important. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, you know, often the pain causes sleep disruption, relationship disruption, this work, they're not exercising because they're in pain. So it is, it's multifactorial and it's quite involved, isn't it? And then you've got the anxiety and depression that goes along with, with central sensitization. Central sensitization and anxiety and depression occur in, within the brain, within the, the same region. The neurochemicals that get released are the same. And so they feed off each other. And so you'll get this worsening um, feedback loop, which is really hard to... Mm. And practically to in primary care, you're faced with this in a 15-minute consult. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, how do you... Pick one thing. Yeah, and you know, one of the big issues: why do these, why do women with endometriosis develop these symptoms? Because, because they're developing their dysmenorrhea and their significant pain at a young age, when the brain is very young, still developing, and you start developing pathways, pain pathways early, and that's that's a really it's a really difficult thing, and that's why getting the information out there, programs like the Me program, programs like they have in, in Australia, where uh, encouraging young women, adolescent women, to help manage their periods and, and seek primary care advice. Just a question about the amenorrhea again. Mm. Um, why are we trying to do that? Is it to manage the complex pain issues? When we thought it was retrograde menstruation, was it that? So what is it about amenorrhea that is so useful for these women? So, you know, endometriosis is common, but primary dysmenorrhea related to just period loss and prostaglandin production, especially in, in young women, is really, really common, probably more common than, than endometriosis itself. So you can have a group of, you know, of young women who will develop central sensitization, peripheral sensitization, just from primary dysmenorrhea. So if we can help try and stop that, that pathway, it's really important. And that's why I'm talking about the prostaglandin release, methanamic acid or ponstan, that has more of a focus and that is more successful in pain relief rather than neurofen and ibuprofen, which are less uterine specific. And then same with um, Celebrex as well, which is more expensive, but we would tend to use those more than simple um, non-steroidals. But you're right, stop it. And if they have adenomyosis, but without endometriosis, although about 70% of women with adenomyosis, so that's the uterine endometriosis, will also have extra uterine disease. If you can manage the uterus, which is the significant part of the problem here, and stop whether they've got adenomyosis or not, 
stop the bleeding, stop the inflammation, inflammation each month. And that old adage when we were training, well, use your uterus, then lose it. I mean, that's what I used to be taught that by my bosses. You have your family, and there were so many women in their 30s having the ones we were brought up on doing simple hysterectomies. We should be stopping that because with the advent of all the different conceptions in the Mirena now, it's completely changed the women that we're operating on, and we're mostly operating on now women with pathology, with true pathology, rather than those small kind of, quote, normal uteruses. Um, so it's about managing the uterus is, is a significant part of the problem. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that. I wondered about progesterones now. So if a woman's on a long-term progestin, do we need to think about their bones? And if we are thinking about their bones, how often and when do we start thinking about them? Tricky question. So I, t- I saw someone recently who'd had laparoscopy in 2010 for severe endometriosis. Uh, this was uh, elsewhere down the South Island. And They'd, man- they'd treated her cysts but hadn't treated the endometriosis and to stop her pain periods they put her on high dose Provera, 20 milligrams TDS and she'd been on that for 10 years. She's now 42 and had osteopenia. So long-term progesterone use at that dose clearly is not appropriate. Your short, short or medium to use of oral progesterone, so our Noriday which has the lowest amenorrhea rate and it's only got that one hour window. If you're going to use a progesterone only pill, try Cerizet between about $50 and $70 for a three month prescription that has a much better amenorrhea rate and that long term is perfectly appropriate in terms of systemic absorption but oral Provera or norethisterone or your depo Provera I think the UK guideline is after five years you should use you should review the use Um, but if you're giving someone a drug that you know is having a significant side effect you've got to be thinking whether you should be using that and particularly with the advent of Mirena really and 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 with the change now the fact that the Mirena is funded although I appreciate the fitting isn't in primary care, and that's between 150 and 250 for fitting. But in someone that's sexually active, whether they've had children or not, putting Mirena in for five years, if it's in fact more effective than a pill that you take every day, well, we should be moving even more towards Mirena. That would be my thoughts on it. I mean, one of the difficulties, whatever we use, there's a 50% discontinuation rate because of side effects. And I mean, that's one of the big issues with progestins is the side effects. And weight gain, mood issues, and patients don't like that. Uh, having worked in Australia, uh, we had the benefit of Dynagest, so Vizan, which is actually mentioned in the, in the New Zealand guideline, but it's not available uh, here in, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, it was actually brought into uh, Australia by an advocacy group uh, called Endoactive, and they instigated a change.org petition uh, and petitioned the government and Bayer, who produce um, Dynagest, to introduce it into the country. And I've been using, I was using it for several years and found it very effective. It's probably, of all the progestins, it's probably got the least uh, amount of side effects. Uh, and that was very beneficial. And uh, the Dynagest is also, a, it's, it's, uh, by itself, is not contraceptive at a two milligram dose, but uh, there are contraceptive versions that uh, one has estradiol, in a quadrophasic hormonal pattern. And then there's also um, uh, another version that's got estrogen uh, valate as well. Uh, And they were actually very effective forms of contraceptive with uh, low um, side effects. So I would hope that in the near future we can get those into New Zealand, but I appreciate that things are complicated with regard to pharmac and funding and things. Just on that note, it was about progesterones. And so 
I've said Noriday has a fairly low amenorrhea rate. So if someone, for example, on Noriday had or Mirena had breakthrough bleeding, we could, you could either in Primacare, you could double the dose of Noriday. So Noriday is 350 micrograms of norethisterone. Someone with breakthrough bleeding on the Mirena, I would probably start pure norethisterone, norethisterone, and that would be five milligrams. So that's 14 times the dose of Noriday. So there is a drive and that comes up in the consensus document to try primarily norethisterone. Now, clearly that's not licensed as a contraceptive. Theoretically, though, if it's 14 times the dose of Noriday, clearly it is a contraceptive, but just for primary care, just be aware you cannot theoretically use it as a contraceptive, but it's, you can add in as much progesterone as you want in the short term. Its side effects is what limits you. And, you know, we would use someone with very heavy periods really to try and stop them 20, 40, 60 milligrams of a progesterone a day. For inoperable endometrial cancer, we used to use a megase, which I'm not sure if we've got in New Zealand, but that was 500 milligrams of a progesterone. I mean, probably caused horrible side effects, but you can actually go up. You're not really going to cause any harm in the short term with higher doses. Then what happens if we come to a point where we're not managing things, moving on to the GNRH analogues? So GNRH analogues have been very popular, particularly in New Zealand, particularly in the UK. Uh, in Australia, where I've been working, it is only indicated for six months, and you're not allowed to give any more than six months because of the significant effect on bone loss and the cost involved in taking GnRH agonists. That is um, also backed up in the, the new RANSCOG guidelines that you should only be using six months, and you should also be using, using ADBAC uh, estrogen as well at the same time. Is it the be-all and end-all? Is it um, No, it's not, because one of the problems with severe endometriosis, particularly disease that's more as adenomyotic, it actually produces its own estrogen, and we know that. And so actually giving GnRH agonists can be of no benefit whatsoever, make no, difficult, no um, change in their symptoms. I mean, historically it's been, I mean, we, I certainly from 10 years ago, I, I don't think I've prescribed it for two or three years, really rarely because you're giving a drug and then you're having to give a bit of ad back because they're getting side effects from it that seems counterintuitive to me i mean the very rare times i would now use it it would be someone who perhaps has a normal pelvis and a normal uterus that has chronic pain and significant dysmenorrhea to see if you can achieve amenorrhea is that gun hysterectomy going to help them but that would be a really small group but i do know for example at counties where i was working the waiting list now for severe endometriosis surgery is 12 to 18 months. So they're using, and these are women with endometriomas, so they're using Zolodex quite a lot there just to try and calm things down and reduce the number of admissions whilst they're waiting for their surgery. But it wouldn't be something that specialists would regularly use now. It's this, this, there's too many other drugs available. So obviously at this point we've referred to a specialist and you're trying these things. Then there'd be the multidisciplinary team involved. So... Tell us what their role is amongst this management. So essentially when a patient is referred to tertiary care, the team initially is seen by, by a gynaecologist, and at that point hopefully that gynaecologist is a specialist in the field of endometriosis. If they're not, and they recognise this patient has uh, more complex needs, they'll actually refer uh, within the, the endometriosis team, uh, and different DHBs have different structures. We've just done a recent survey and most DHBs around the country have specialists with an interest in endometriosis. Not all of them have endometriosis clinics, 
but hopefully the patients end up in the right centre. They may be referred to another DHB from one such as some of the smaller DHBs will refer to the bigger ones with these, with these complex patients. And then the gy- it's up to the gynaecologist, depending on their skill, getting other uh, practitioners involved, surgical specialists such as urologists for bladder disease, colorectal surgeons for bowel disease, and then potentially cardiothoracic specialists or hepatobiliary specialists for uh, managing diaphragm and chest. So that's, that's managing things surgically, but then we've got the multidisciplinary team that helps manage their pain issues. And I, more and more, will actually get the multidisciplinary team for pain involved before I get the surgical team involved because I know that these patients, we can do their surgery, we can help the surgical disease, but they still have the complex pelvic pain, the central sensitization, peripheral sensitization, pelvic floor hyperactivity, uh, and visceral hyperactivity, so the bowel symptoms, the bloating, the, the bladder pain. And so getting early physios and pelvic floor physios involved, pain psychologists, because so many of these patients are depressed and anxious, and um, a pain specialist involved. And that's been a huge explosion of an idea for centralising services. For a DHB to try and get all those services together is, you know, it's really difficult from a financial perspective, clearly, let alone a skills perspective. Certainly the involvement of women's health physios has exploded over the last 10 years and the, the, the vital role they can play with pelvic floor spasm, which from a lifestyle perspective and sexual activity perspective, is, it's invaluable. And a lot of these women will have problems. A lot of women... There was that recent, there was a study published in 2019, I think, that said that 24% of New Zealand women had had some form of sexual abuse. So there's a huge amount of women out there, and no wonder they have pelvic floor spasm, which then affects the uterus, then affects mood, and you've got this whole, um, you know, complex system of diagnoses going on. Um, but a, a, a multiple team is really, really important, and that's quite a change from what we used to do 10 years ago, definitely. And certainly on the survey we recently did, we surveyed all the DHBs around the country, and there's, there's certainly specialists with an interest in surgical management, and they've got teams that they can call on. But having access to a pain service with a specific interest in women's health is a few and far between in this country, and that's something that we need to improve. Uh, and develop. But we're actually not that far behind Australia. Australia has the same issues uh, with access to, to management of complex pelvic pain. You know, I've come to Auckland and we have an amazing pain service. We have four pain specialists. We have pain nurses. It's, a, it's really unusual, but it's amazing. And I've joined that pain team as a gynecologist and they've never had a gynecologist within that pain team. And I think having a gynecologist is, is really important and I think they're appreciating me being within the team. So that's something again we want to develop around the country. So thinking of endometriosis as a chronic disease, you've mentioned lifestyle measures. What things have been proven to be useful in these women? That's a difficult question because there's a there's a very good book by Michael Wench and Susan Evans who's a little bit of a guru in terms of chronic pain um, in Australia and she's written a number of different books about Seeing in more of a holistic approach, yes, we are, we've already been quite, quite clear here that yes, we are as surgeons as one part of it, and we've got the other parts of the team, the other um, health professionals. And lifestyle, it is important. Your exercise, your natural endorphins, there's very good evidence that that can help with pain anywhere, let alone pelvic pain. So that, that, yes, that is a positive. A lot of the other things like dietary intake and different food groups, 
if they've got irritable bowel, for example, for gluten intolerances or other things, then yes, it's going to help with their chronic pain. But specifically for endometriosis and some of the inflammatory markers, it is an inflammatory disease. And there are, as you know, diets out there that are thought to reduce inflammation. And then also more down the naturopathic route and, t- route and taking different um, ions, magnesium and aluminium. The evidence for those isn't as good. But I think the idea of seeing it as more of a holistic approach, which Susan Evans' book, um, Living with Endometriosis, which we've got at the end as a um, source of information, we often give that out to women. And it does, it, it's, it's quite useful for women to realise that it's not just the surgery. It's everything else and their lifestyle around it. And if we can get that across, I think, and get little gains in little areas, that's going to be helpful. One of the things I see is patients asking about diet and is there a diet that will fix their endometriosis? And there is not. But there are uh, on social media the people touting that you can pay a large amount of money and I'll give you this secret diet that will help your endometriosis. The one thing that has been proven to help patients with endometriosis is the FODMAP diet low inflammatory diet, which reduces the visceral hyperactivity of the bowel when they have bloating and and constipation and diarrhea. And it's just removing those inflammatory foods that exacerbate those symptoms. But the other thing I think really important, I've said this just before, is sleep hygiene. So many of these patients are not sleeping. Um, They've developed poor sleep habits and finding ways of helping them sleep. Uh, We used a lot of melatonin just to help initiate sleep. From what I understand, it's very expensive for New Zealand, but um, that's very, very, that's beneficial, I think. People don't realise how much of a powerful antioxidant melatonin is too. Mm. So if we're thinking of trying to decrease inflammation and get rid of those toxins, then very useful and no harm in using it long term. There is a six-week thing in our formulary, but um, the safety data is quite good long term. I get patients on amitriptyline very early as well, uh, often pre-surgery as well, just using a really low dose of amitriptyline. Uh, So half a tablet, so five milligrams of the lowest dose three hours before bed, um, talking to them about the potential side effects they'll have for the first few weeks, dry mouth, blurry vision, feeling quite dopey uh, initially, but if they take it three hours before bed, then they can reduce those sort of symptoms. And then after a week or so, increasing it to 10 milligrams. It's amazing how many young women really appreciate going on that medication particularly for the central sensitisation symptoms that most of them ex- are experiencing. And there was, I was talking to one of our anaesthetists recently about the use of gabapentin, which is the other nerve blocker we use. Yes, um, your face explains that. We're trying to move away for a little bit. I mean, the, the evidence for gabapentin or actually pregabalin is probably has less side effects. And that would be more of a multidisciplinary. I certainly wouldn't expect people in primary care to be starting things like that. But it's um, actually, I, I'm amazed, and the, uh, pregabalin is the most common prescribed medication in Australia. Really? Which, and I see this happening in New Zealand as well, coming here, uh, and we've got to kind of pull back on pregabalin mm. uh, because it's actually, it is addictive and it can be abused uh, with, with opioids. So I think we've got to be really careful with pregabalin. It is a very effective in neuropathic pain, but... There's a, that's actually only a, there's only a small group of people that it's effective in, and we, we, we shouldn't be giving it out too much, I think. It's, yeah. Yeah, I think the initial trials, I remember looking into that a few years back, it was diabetic neuropathy that it yeah, was trialled on, yeah. and we've just let it oozed <laughs> into every other kind of pain, and yeah. I don't, my personal opinion is I don't think that's appropriate, and 
Uh, one of the very effective medications that we had in Australia uh, for persistent pelvic pain and any pain was duloxetine, which is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressant. It was in, Australia, in New Zealand uh, for a reasonable period of time and then actually took it off the market. Uh, but actually uh, using it in a very low dose in these women, minimal side effects and actually very effective drug. All right, moving on to fertility, because this is often something we see, and for young girl women in my clinic, I often see, you know, they come in as a teenager with their mum, painful periods, have I got endometriosis to get put on the pill, they're on the pill for 15 years, go to get pregnant, bang, there's all the stuff that comes up as we take them off the pill. So thinking about fertility now for a moment, what, what can we do for these women? How do we approach fertility issues? Well, the first thing I need to say, and this is a, a real issue, is pregnancy is not a cure for endometriosis. And we know patients are told continuously by family members and health practitioners, primary care and tertiary care, that pregnancy will fix endometriosis. It does not. A woman uh, or a patient should have a baby or choose to have a baby when it's right for them, uh, not because of the disease they're experiencing. Uh, as practitioners, we should um, inquire about their fertility desires and, 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 and talk about that, and that's really important. And particularly when we have severe endometriosis and we want to be thinking about are there going to be any problems and make them aware of that and give them the information for them to read and, and discuss. Uh, we want to be thinking about potentially their ovarian reserve, particularly when they have uh, endometriomas. Uh, and that can be assessed relatively simply with a transvaginal ultrasound scan looking at the antral follicle count. All right, so we're looking at the developing follicles and that correlates very well with their, their future fertility prospects. The other uh, test we can do is the anti-malarian hormone level, AMH, and that's what we call the egg timer test. Now, uh, I think in, from what I understand in New Zealand, it's about $120. And so it's patient self-funded, and that can be a useful um, gauge for a patient who wants to know where they are with regard to their fertility. Once we get to a point where a patient is, uh, they've stopped the pill and they're trying to conceive, within the New Zealand guidelines, uh, it's uh, two years of trying uh, before you can be referred, or is it one year? It depends yeah. on reg it's regional, regional guidelines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Australia and New Zealand definition of endometriosis is one year of trying under the age of 36 uh, is the definition of endometriosis and over 36 uh, we usually recommend six months um, and seeking, uh, seeking advice. And that in New Zealand obviously you, you can be referred publicly within the, within the system uh, and go on the waiting list which is about two years. Again it depends on your postcode and where you are as to how that is managed. If you've been diagnosed with endometriosis, either surgically or based on symptoms and, and findings, then um, you get increased points with regard to your referral. So that can be beneficial. Within the European uh, guidelines, American guidelines, Australian guidelines, if you've been diagnosed with endometriosis and you're not particularly symptomatic, all right, then the guideline would recommend pursuing fertility assistance, and that would generally be uh, superovulation, so inducing ovulation uh, with two or three follicles and combining that with artificial insemination. If a patient has uh, endometriosis and they're 
it's their pain as it is, dominates uh, their symptoms, then they would go along the surgical route. And we know that doing surgery on patients with endometriosis who are seeking fertility can improve their chances of conceiving naturally, okay? but also fertility is, uh, artificial reproductive technologies such as superovulation, IUI, and IVF as well. But really, it's, it's, the woman should be the center of the care. Uh, it should be what she, as an individual or an, as in a couple, uh, want to achieve and um, letting them be in control. And when you say surgery, what procedure are you referring to there? Surgery would be excisional surgery, removing disease as best that that could be performed, whether that's endometriomas or deep infiltrating disease. But we even know that mild disease excised uh, improves chances of conceiving. And within you know, the New Zealand public system, obviously, there's a waiting list. Uh, so if we can re- resect the disease, they're still on the waiting list, and that gives them a, a chance to conceive naturally. And one of the one of the things I've seen easy in the last ten years is with the easy access, easy easier access to fertility services, is that women are having f- assisted fertility with symptoms, but not having had the surgery first. And surely, if you can do an operation that improves your natural response, certainly as a surgeon, Mike does a lot of fertility and surgery. I more just surgery, so I don't have the experience of fertility. If you can do a surgery that improves your natural conception without any other drugs, I'd take the surgery first. But definitely there's a, the, the guidelines don't really go into that, but there's a, there's a slight difference in opinion between specialists as to what you do first off. But for me, I think if you've got symptoms and quality of life style uh, is uh, as an issue, then you want the surgery first. But if there's a long waiting time, where's the equity in that? And I'm, I'm probably a bit of an outlier as it regards to a fertility specialist because my aim really, as I see, is to help women try and conceive naturally, mm-hmm. and that would be with surgery. Uh, and then if that hasn't worked, then we consider ART uh, and IVF. I mean, the difficulty with, with fertility in, in New Zealand is, is the postcode lottery if you're public, but also the expense for patients privately. In Australia, we had federal-funded IVF for everybody. So your out-of-pockets was actually limited. There was actually, but one of the downsides was there's no public IVF. So everyone has to go privately. And so there are pluses and minuses to the system we have in New Zealand. And one of the quick thing you've mentioned there is about endometriomas and surgery for that. We know if they're over a certain size of endometriomas that it does reduce um, ovarian reserve. And there is some drive with young women with large endometriomas, whether you do um, egg freezing first as that's coming up and becoming more popular and getting better results, but that's kind of early days yet. I think if you've got a large endometrioma and you've got symptoms, you've got to do the surgery first. And patients need to be aware that, as you said, that their, their ovarian reserve can reduce with endometrioma surgery. So that's I generally would prefer, encourage a patient to have an anti-malarian hormone level before surgery so we can see what's going on after surgery as well. All right, so just thinking about health equity, we mentioned it a little bit earlier and we've talked a lot about the postcode lottery at the moment which is hopefully changing. What else needs to happen as far as endometriosis management to get a more equitable system for our women? Having returned, I keep saying I having returned to New, to New Zealand, um, I, one of the things that's really struck me is uh, in the public clinics is the difference between seeing uh, European Pākehā women at often a young age who are very well informed, been on social media, who know what they want, compared to uh, Wahine Māori women and Pacific Island women who are presenting in their 40s with quite severe disease that they have struggled with 
for many years and their late presentation is obviously due to a, a number of different factors, but there is actually no research on that at the moment as to why they're presenting late, but there's a lot of cultural issues, but also, from what I understand, there are issues related to colonisation and being educated to, to not complain about these issues. These are women's issues, you don't talk about that. And there's differences between how Wahini Māori women and Pacifica women are presenting in, in that field. So I think there's, a, there's, there's so much we don't know and there's so much more we can imp- improve on. And that's what, one thing that struck me when I started here 10 years ago at Middlemore with obviously a very large Pacific and Māori population is how late women left their disease and they all were severe endometriosis. Some with, often with uh, abscesses as well because the endometriomas got affected, they'd have acute admissions and really, really difficult surgery. And why are these women leaving it so late? And as Mike said, we have no national data. We have no data. We actually don't have data yet on even the incidence of endometriosis in New Zealand, let alone different ethnicities. And that's something that with a, with a national, with a plan, we need to get data on it. And then we can actually start focusing where we put the services. Well, we just need a women's health plan yeah. uh, as well as a national action plan for endometriosis. Uh, one of the, th- the things that, the other issues that I've noticed since coming home is the number of tubo ovarian abscesses within the hospitals. In my 15 years as a, as a consultant in Brisbane, I saw two tubo ovarian abscesses. We see five a week. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. just completely different. And Why is that? Yeah. So um, Middlemore have just done a nice little paper looking at, mm. uh, at tubo ovarian abscesses in these populations. And it's something we really need to address and look at. I think two access to primary care is, is yeah. crucial. So a question that we always get asked from our women as we refer them is, what are they going to expect when they see a specialist? What should we be telling them? Well, I think that we've talked quite a bit about the sort of history and examination that we're going to be performing and hopefully improving towards actually ultrasounding in clinic and in secondary care actually being able to provide that service to stage them properly and see an appropriate specialist. Certainly I know from the public system, Women often see the registrars first. They often certainly, I know in two of the three DHBs in Auckland, they see a registrar first and often don't see a consultant till the second visit or the third visit. So I suppose from a practical perspective, telling women it's that they're going to be assessed and if you're referring up as per the guidelines and they're being accepted, it's likely that a significant proportion will need surgery. So the reason, we've talked about some of the reasons referring, for referring up. There will be women who I maybe have had surgery in the past and need to go down the chronic pain and the multidisciplinary routine pathway. But if they haven't had a laparoscopy, getting a diagnosis and making a plan, and we've said how important it is to get in there and do that. Um, one of the questions which we've discussed in previous Goodfellow podcasts is about at what age do you do the first laparoscopy? And that's, that's a really hairy topic to talk about. And you will find quite differing views amongst specialists. Some would say they have to do it early at 16 so you can make a plan. The chance of finding significant disease more than stage 2 under the age of 18 is low. We've all seen it, but it's not, if you can manage medically and managing it for 5 to 10 years, it's not going to affect long-term fertility. And even if it did, for that patient at that point in their life, managing medically is perfectly appropriate. So I don't think there's any right time. A lot of us will try not to do laparoscopies under the age of 18. But if you've got a girl who's sexually active, who's in a lot of pain and taking time off school, actually getting a diagnosis helps you plan the right person that they should see. 
So it's not a no, you can't do an early laparoscopy. And that's why transvaginal ultrasound in these young girls who are sexually active is really effective. And you can reassure them that they haven't got any deep infiltrating disease. They may have some mild disease. Let's manage things medically. Or you may see severe disease, as I've seen, you know, 17, two 17-year-olds recently with stage 4 disease that I picked up on ultrasound scan. And we went on and did surgery. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, just to conclude our podcast, what would your top take-home messages be for our listeners? So for me, for primary care, one of the most important ones if patient presents with dysmenorrhea alone, trialling some sort of pill combined or progesterone only or Mirena as a first-line treatment, perfectly appropriate. Once you get the secondary symptoms, dyspareunia, dyskesia, abdominal bloating, other life, things that affect the lifestyle, according to regional guidelines, that's the group that you should be referring up. Ideally, after an ultrasound by appropriately trained professional, if it's funded. Assessing the impact of women's pain on the quality of her life is an important marker for the presence of endometriosis. Also, there are a number of resources out there for women to access and give them more information about the condition, but also a lot of resources for GPs. Uh, Ranscog have produced an excellent uh, learning app uh, that's available in the list of resources uh, after this podcast. And what you probably understand that we're trying to move towards is secondary care services be provided as a specialist model similar to gynae cancers with uh, regional centres, multidisciplinary meetings, access to multidisciplinary teams so that we can move more towards uh, centres of excellence in endometriosis, which provides also the training and the future doctors and surgeons. That's the model that's been working very well with Gynae Oncology, and that's a model that we're pushing for as well. We should, all, we should really be treating these patients as if they have cancer. Uh, and we know that the, actual eff- the, the multiple effects that they have on their life is as bad as having cancer, and there's good research to show that. And so finally, we should be really aiming to move away from diagnostic laparoscopy and repeated laparoscopies as the improvement in pain management reduces with each operation. Excellent. Well, thank you both for your time today and for joining me on the podcast. It's been fantastic. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points, please log them, and you'll find a list of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.